Well, I invite you to Esther chapter 2. We'll pick up at the end of that chapter uh, in just a moment. And many of you know the story of Esther. Uh, I believe that I know its contents. I've spent the last many weeks under the hearing of the book of Esther as I've listened to various audio versions of it, different translations just over and over again. And I believe that I know the plot, and I know the story, and many of you know the plot. You know many of the details of the plot, and how the, the book begins and ends, and how the great story of God's providence unfolds in its pages. And as we know the book of Esther, my prayer is that we will know its author. And that's really been my prayer for this week. And I want to warn you about today's passage under the sermon title, Two Plots to Kill and The Plan to Save, which is really the outline of the portion we'll look at today, Two Plots to Kill and The Plan to Save. I want to warn you that our portion of this book begins in a really dark place. And the bad news is it gets worse. It begins dark and it ends darker. And this sermon may be a little bit of a parable for where some of you feel like you're living today. Uh, It may have been just a brief time in the days immediately leading up to this Lord's Day, or it may feel to you like quite some time. But I would assume that it's, I would think it's safe to assume that, that many of us feel like we're in a dark place. And in the Lord's kind providence, maybe the darkness of these days in Esther's story will be part of what God uses to minister to you in a very, very special way. There are three parts to the passage. Instead of just beginning and reading it through, we'll read portions, we'll read the entirety of our portion uh, in its separate parts as we take a look at it. But the three parts are an an assassination attempt on the king, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes as your Bible may render it. There's an assassination attempt on his life. The second part is really the main chunk of the book of Esther. It gets introduced to us in an extermination decree against the Jews led by the wicked Haman. And then finally, there's a salvation mediator who intercedes and intervenes for the Jewish people. So the assassination attempt, the extermination decree, and the salvation mediator, or even more simply and kind of raw, kill him, kill the king, kill them, kill the Jews, and then somebody stands up and says, no, no, kill me. Esther goes to intercede for the people. Kill him, kill them, kill me. we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right to work. Instead of reading the text, as I mentioned, beginning and then backing up and looking at it, we'll just read the text as we work our way through the passage. But I would like to ask you, with that outline in view, if you would join me one more time at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help. Father in heaven, as I suggested, maybe many of us do feel like we're in a dark place spiritually, relationally, emotionally, maybe all the above and in other ways. So we ask that You would show us Your heart today. Like these long dark days that we encounter in the book of Esther. It's easy for us just to fast forward to the end and see that You were at work. That is very obvious. 
once we get to the end of the story. But many of us feel like we're not at the end of the story yet in our own experience. And so we're asking that You would cause the saving light of the beauty of Jesus to shine into the dungeon where some of us seem to be. And we do ask that more than our own individual experience, You would also open our eyes to see Your grand, sovereign purpose to do good for all of Your people for eternity. Help us to see Your heart, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The events of the book of Esther, we need to remember, unfold over a long period of time. I've mentioned already that I've listened to the book of Esther over and over and over for the past several weeks, and that really has been a joy, and so many of the details and nuances of this story have riveted my heart again, as if for the first time I'm discovering uh, the fingerprints of God in the details of this story, and that really has been a joy. But while I may just sit and listen to the whole book, or sit down and read the whole book in one sitting, these events unfolded over a long period of time. The first three chapters covered 12 years. That's as long as this church has existed. That's longer than some of you young people have been alive. In chapter 1, verse 3, there's a six-month-long banquet. And it happens in the third year. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 16, Esther is chosen as queen. And that happens in Ahasuerus' seventh year. In chapter 3, verse 7, Haman plot against the Jews, which we'll deal with today, happens in the twelfth year. So there's twelve years in the first three chapters, and many of those years are very, very dark. The book also provides us not only what happened in the days of Esther and Mordecai and the people of Israel who were living in the Persian kingdom, the former Babylonian era, uh, an area of the world. This is modern day Iraq uh, where these events are taking place. Not only does it give us a zoom in to what God was doing in that day and that place, it also, Esther, serves uniquely in the scope of the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation to explain for us what life was like for the Jewish people under Persian rule. Nobody else explains to us as clearly as Esther what that situation was like. In the timeline of the Bible, Esther explains the situation of those Jews who did not return to Judah, Israel, from the Babylonian captivity. So when the people get carried away, those who do not return, Esther gives us a picture of what their lives were like. And... In the big biblical storyline, the book of Esther explains, as Jim mentioned last week, the background of a feast that occurs to this day in the lives of Jewish people called the Feast of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. It's a celebration that to this very day the Jewish people celebrate annually. Well, we're going to look at the portion that we have for today in three headings. Kill him, kill them, kill me. Sounds pretty encouraging, huh? Chapter 2, verse 19. Kill Him. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear God's Word. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known 
her kindred, or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Verse 21, in those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they, the two officials, were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Kill him. Well, I get that from this assassination attempt from these two Officials of the king, Bigthan and Teresh, had a plot to assassinate Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Same fellow. Verse 21 tells us that this plot to assassinate the king became known to Mordecai in verse 21 while he was sitting at the king's gate. In other words, Mordecai just so happened to overhear a conversation or be informed of a conversation that two guys who intended to assassinate the king we're having. Of course, that happenstance is not a happenstance. We as God's people don't believe in luck. We don't believe in fortune. We don't believe in karma. We believe in a providential, all-sovereign potentate, a king. The far-reaching extent of the sovereignty of God, as Charles Spurgeon said, applies to the might of dust that floats through the sky in the room in which we now sit that we can't see. God is in control of the details. And this happenstance, Mordecai overhearing the plot to assassinate King Xerxes, will soon prove integral to the overall storyline of Esther. Had Mordecai not heard that conversation, the book of Esther would not be in your Bible. And this will factor prominently in the unfolding plan of God to save His people. But before we just move into this plot and what these two fellows were wanting to do to the king, I want you to notice something about emotions. That's one of the themes of the book of Esther. We're told on several occasions something about the inner man. Look at these two men, Bigthan and Teresh. We're told in verse 21 that they became angry. Do you see that emotion? And we don't know the backstory on why they were angry. We don't know why they wanted to kill the king. Esther doesn't give us that material, but we just know that they were angry. I want you to look into that emotion in these two men. Anger is not always a sin. It often is, and I would suggest it most often is. But the Bible does command us to be angry and not sin. So it's possible to have a righteous anger. These men didn't have that. And we know from just looking into this little episode at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus was right. That anger in the heart of any man that is a sinful anger always leads to murderous desires to be carried out by their hand. Be warned about your anger is why I'm emphasizing this point. Your anger toward your fellow man left unchecked, will necessarily conclude in a murderous desire. Jesus said so. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. 
And whoever commits murder, Jesus said, shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Anger in the heart leads necessarily to the sin of murder. Anger manifests when we're grieved for our honor because someone has broken our law. That's really the root of anger. You know what makes you mad? We could put it kind of in a spiritualized little phrase. What makes you mad is when somebody touches your idol. You don't even know what your idols are until somebody else puts their grubby hands on them. And when somebody touches your idol, you know when they touched it because one of your emotions is anger. But we could say it in a more biblical construct and say, when somebody breaks your law, you get righteous. (laughs) Not wholly righteous. You get sinfully angry. That's what happened to these guys. And again, we don't have all the details, so I won't labor the point any further other than saying this. Righteous anger occurs not when we're grieved because somebody broke my law. You know, snap at my kids because they broke my law and I'm the king of my house. That's self-deification. I don't need to repent only of snapping at my kids. I need to repent of making myself a god. Righteous anger occurs when we're grieved for God's honor. Not because somebody broke my law, but because somebody broke His law. Now the king was obviously a megalomaniac. Xerxes was a me-monster. He may have done something awful to these two men personally that may have warranted the emotions of the anger that they felt, but plotting to take vengeance into their own hands shows that their anger controlled them, making them more of a servant of anger than they were ever a servant of the king. And anger became their master, not Xerxes. And it developed into an assassination plot. Be warned, your anger is not a nice little pet that you can cuddle and coddle and that will purr in your lap and take a nap with you when you're tired. It will destroy you. And it will hurt other people left unchecked. Well now, had this backstory not occurred and their unhinged anger not existed, Mordecai would never have overheard their plot to kill the king. But as we know, God is always working His plan to perfection even in the midst of the tyranny of wicked kings and even in the murderous plans of angry men. God is sitting squarely on His throne. Verse 22 could indicate that Mordecai either overheard the plot with his own ears or that somebody came and informed him of the plot. But either way, the New American Standard renders it in verse 22, the plot became known. To Mordecai and he told Queen Esther that channel of information transfer occurs again later in the book and it's so important Mordecai finds out he informs Esther Esther informs Ahasuerus or Xerxes that's an important channel of information transfer as we'll soon learn well to conclude our meditation on this first point kill him The passage tells us in verse 23, the plot was investigated and found to be so. And that's interesting if you know anything about the book of Esther. Investigated and found to be so. So many times in this little book, the king is presented as the most reckless man on the planet. He's impulsive. He's power hungry. He is a life-belittling me monster. He doesn't care about other people. He doesn't care about a justice system. He just cares about whatever he thinks in that moment and however he feels he so acts. But when his own life 
is in jeopardy, he ironically follows the judicial process of the day and investigates these accusations. It's innocent until proven guilty instead of Vashti guilty until proven innocent. Had the accusation of the plot not been investigated and found to be so, again, we wouldn't have the book of Esther in our Bibles. But make no mistake, when the accusation was confirmed to be true, Ahasuerus would make an example of these two men for their dastardly intentions. It's true with us also. The true and greater king, when we look at the folly and evil of Xerxes, we see the dark shadow of what accentuates the beautiful light of the true and greater King, the Lord God in heaven. And in the same way, we could say that one day our sin too will find us out. The investigation is going to happen. In fact, it's already underway. But God doesn't convene a council. He doesn't hire private investigators. He doesn't go out searching to figure out exactly how something happened to someone and somebody said it somewhere. He just knows. And at the end of the day, verse 23, these two assassins were, quote, hanged on the gallows. But do you know the main point of this little assassination plot? Kill him? It's not anything that I've said to you so far. The main point is verse 23. It looks like a little footnote that's not even supposed to be there. Why is this inspired sentence in the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit take time to write this little line? Because it's the key of the entire episode. Verse 23, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Had this episode, Mordecai telling Esther about these two guys' plot, and Esther telling the king, and the king investigating the situation and finding it to be true, and the two men being hanged on the gallows, not been written in the book, I'll say it again, you wouldn't have the book of Esther in your Bible. Of course, you know the story of Esther. That little footnote in verse 23 is a major detail later in the book. And we just like to fast forward to that. But I want you to put yourself back in these days. If you do the timeline of the book of Esther, and every commentary I consulted this week agreed, Esther had been queen for five years between the time of this episode and Haman, who we're about to be introduced to, rising to power. And this minor footnote, written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence, becomes a major detail one night when God gives that king insomnia and he can't sleep. And those pages of that book are read to him. And if those little details don't happen, then not only do we not have the book of Esther, we don't have a people of God's own possession. We don't from them have eventually the Christ the King, the Redeemer, the Gospel, details are God's playground to unfold His providence in the lives of His people even when we can't see it. Kill Him. Number two, kill them. I mentioned this is the main point, really, of the unfolding chunk of the book of 
Esther, it begins in chapter 3, it carries to the end of the book, but we're introduced to this gentleman named Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1, I'll read all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. Buckle thy seatbelt. <laughs> After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai <laughs> neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he, Mordecai, had told them that he was a Jew. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people. They do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put, the king, to put into the king's treasuries. Verse 10. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also. Do with them as you please. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written, just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the king of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. Verse 15, the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly 
He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Ma, ma, ma. The main plot of the book of Esther is contained in the situation that has just been read in our hearing. Namely, that Haman, this new vice-regent of the great Persian Empire, is so incensed with selfish hatred for Mordecai the Jew that he, Haman, crafts a plan to wipe out the entire Jewish population. Let's draw our attention to a few of the details in this portion of Haman's plot. Before I outline four of the details, I want to remind you that one of the many unexpected turns in the book of Esther is when we flip from chapter 2 to chapter 3. We would expect that the man who's honored as the vice-regent of the Persian Empire would be Mordecai, the guy who just unfolded the assassination plot against the king. Esther, after all, told the king in Mordecai's name about the plot. And the king had Mordecai's name written in the book. But when we turn the page, we find a new man. Haman the Agagite. Seemingly out of nowhere, this new character bursts onto the scene. He becomes a major contributor to the entire storyline. As Jim pointed out last week, Haman is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. Agag is that king who was spared back in the day by King Saul when God had instructed Saul to annihilate all the Amalekites. Well, many generations later, here we see a son of Saul who disobeyed the Lord. Saul's son down the line is Mordecai. Agag's son down the line is Haman. Via Benjamin. Uh, uh, Mordecai, pardon me, via Benjamin, via Kish. And the son of Agag, Haman, via Hamadatha, we're told in this letter. It's just a little subtle thread woven in through the language and the lineage that any Old Testament Israelite would have picked up on. And sometimes we're a little fuzzy on our Old Testament history, and so it doesn't stand out to us so clearly. But we're looking at nothing other than the consequence of one man's sin affecting thousands of people. I can't leave that point without reminding you of our friend Jonah, who before he got swallowed by a fish was in a boat that was about to be capsized, but he wasn't in that boat alone. He was in that boat with a, got a, a lot of guys who earned their living out on the high seas and doing the fishing to support their families. Those men, most no doubt, would have been married and with children and loved ones both in the generations ahead and behind, mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews, but they found themselves on that day in a boat with a man who was running from God and all of them were under the peril of death because of the sin of one man. Your sin never, never only affects you. Like Jonah, like King Saul, little compromise here or there, we excuse it, we put it in so many 
accentuated terms. If you only understood, if you only knew, if you were in the circumstances like me, if other people had it as bad as me, we're so good at perforating the edges of why it's okay for us to bleed beyond the boundaries of God's good Word. And Saul's little sin, we find in the book of Esther, puts the lives of thousands in jeopardy. This anonymous man though, Mordecai, unlike Saul, does what prominent Saul failed to do for the honor of God and in service to the people of God. He later will carry out that command that God had given to Saul so many years earlier. But before we just rush past the details, let's consider again just a few of the specifics from the portion I just read. First, why was Haman? Why was Haman promoted to such a prestigious position, robed with the king's robe, put on the chariot, paraded in front of the people? This is his best day, right? Why is he filled with such rage against Mordecai? That's number one. Why was Haman the Agagite filled with such rage against Mordecai? One little man. The answer is found in verse 2 of chapter 3. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. The text tells us that Mordecai's defiance against the king's command to bow down to the Agagite vice president of Persia was not a one-time experience. This happened, quote, day after day. Verse 4, Now it was when they had spoken, that's some people out in the streets, had spoken daily to Mordecai, he would not listen to them. Now put yourself in this situation. The people are saying, come on. Just keep the peace. God sees your heart. Man sees the outward appearance. Just bow down to this ego monster and all will be well and you can just keep loving Jesus in your heart. Now some of you may think I'm about to be a little silly here, but we literally saw an eerily similar episode to Mordecai not bowing to Haman play out in this city yesterday. It was yesterday morning, and for those of you whose head has been in the sand, there was a pretty big event that happened in Memphis yesterday. It was a huge win for our city. Everybody's saying that, and I don't disagree on so many levels. And there was a big win on the football field by our city's biggest college team. The U of M won a huge game against a ranked opponent. But most people are saying the biggest win didn't happen in front of 60-something thousand people in the Liberty Bowl. They're saying the biggest win happened about 10 blocks from here on Bill Street when a program called College Game Day came to town. They set up their big net viewed television production in front of thousands of University of Memphis fans and city uh, excited people. And I'm telling you about this because game day has a tradition where they invite a guest picker to show up. And I'm not going to bore you with those details if you don't know that lingo. But the guest picker was none other than Memphis's own Jerry the King Lawler. I think it's my first time to use Jerry in a sermon illustration. Well, in a publicity stunt, once Jerry was identified, a social media campaign just sprung up from the grassroots. Game day had nothing to do with it. City planners, mayors, officials had nothing to do with it. University of Memphis 
personnel administration had nothing to do with it. Again, it was a grassroots social media campaign, and it was launched and caught wildfire that was trying to get the thousands of Memphians on Bill Street when King Jerry mounted the platform to bow down to him on national television. Yesterday morning, less than 15 blocks from here. Now, I don't care how loyal your fan base is to your football team or how enthused you are about your own city. Let me be clear. There are no games when it comes to bowing down. God's people bow to nobody but God. While sports fandom and political drunkenness carries the spirit of every age, and people do bow down to celebrities and other popular icons and to political figures, and it's happened since the fall in the garden when our first parents bowed down to the enemy of our souls. God's people only bow to God. Our anthem will never be Heil Hitler who joined Haman in his attempt to exterminate the Jews. It will never be hail Republicanism or hail Democratic Party. It will only and forever be for the people of God, hail Christ. Like Mordecai, in this moment of zero compromise, day after day, although his life circumstances revealed that he may have compromised many times before this, and I personally think that he did, there comes a time when push comes to shove. And we only bow to Jesus. Like the three boys in the book of Daniel, we must have a resolute faith in our sovereign Lord that if He so chooses, our God can save us from the flames that the King may throw us into. But even if we are not spared from Nebuchadnezzar's flames for refusing to bow down to Him, like the three boys in the book of Daniel, even if God does not save us, He is still worthy of our praise and we bow to nobody but Jesus. Ultimately, we don't look to Mordecai and to his magnanimous stand alone in a sea of bowing people. And we don't look ultimately to three boys in Babylon who refused to bow down to a 90-foot tall, 9-foot wide golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar when the music was played, but we look through them to another. The Lord Jesus, who was tempted beyond any man, and specifically in this same way, to bow down to Satan and give him homage. You remember the passage where our beautiful Redeemer stood on His own two incarnate feet instead of getting onto His knees as He had done so many times in prayer to His Father. When in Matthew chapter 4 took the Lord Jesus up to a very high mountain, showed Jesus, quote, all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And in verse 9, Satan said, I have a proposition for you, Jesus. All these kingdoms, quote, I will give you if you fall down and worship Me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then, next verse, the devil left him. And behold, angels came to minister to him. If you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. And that's the way to resist Satan. And the end of verse 5 tells us not only did Mordecai not bow down, even after day after day, people were encouraging him to compromise and probably giving him good excuses for why God would be okay with it. 
We're told about another emotion. Haman was filled. 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 Filled with rage. Do you see that in verse 5? Rage. This man had no control over his emotions. He was a prisoner to them. Instead of putting a harness on his emotions and causing them to flow within the banks of God's Word under the inspiration and illumination of the Holy Spirit, this man is controlled by his emotions. Friends, do you have a rein and a saddle and a bit and a bridle on your emotions by the work of the Holy Spirit? Or do your emotions have a bit and a bridle in your mouth and tell you where you go? This man's filled with rage. Number two in this episode, not only do we see why Haman was filled with rage against Mordecai, but we also see in this portion, why does Haman decide, pardon me, what does Haman decide to do in order to hurt Mordecai as much as possible? You know, the painful thing would have been to kill Mordecai. But the most painful thing, the most painful thing, is what Haman sought to do. To annihilate the entire ethnicity of God's chosen people throughout the Persian Empire. Verse 6, he disdained, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman knew that it would hurt Mordecai far more to have to live for months under the weight of a circled date on a calendar at which time all of his kinsmen according to the flesh in the entire 127 provinces of Persia we're talking from East India to Western Ethiopia would be annihilated because one man refused to get on his knee. This is a way to hurt him more. You know some people live that way, don't they? They don't want to hurt people. They want to hurt people as bad as they possibly can. This is sinister as sinister gets. This is a man who's so filled with rage that he won't be satisfied until every drop of his anger has been poured out on all the people that Mordecai loves. Mordecai, I'm sure, given the choice, would have been much happier to have been skinned alive out there in the city square or impaled alive or hung publicly on those gallows that we're going to read about in just a moment. He would have chosen that in a heartbeat. But Haman doesn't want to hurt Mordecai. Haman is so satanic that he wants to hurt Mordecai in the worst way possible. Number three, what does Haman decide? We said in number two, what does he decide to do to hurt Mordecai the most? Number three, what tactic does Haman use to manipulate the king to support his own genocidal intentions? Haman's the second in command. He's got a lot of power. He's got soon the king's signet ring. He's already wearing the robe. He's in the chariots. The people are bowing down. He's got a lot of power. He just doesn't have enough. Because you know, until your heart is put under the reign of Christ, you'll never have enough either. Until Jesus is enough for you, 
Nothing else ever will be. It doesn't matter how much you get. Money, prestige, power, fame, notoriety, affirmation. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. Second in command, didn't have enough, did he? He knew he needed to work the system to get his desired results. We see it all the time in our day. I could go straight from this passage to the newspaper that was published this morning. Godless people who desire self-praise use the system and extort people to bring about their own selfish gains and ends. Haman didn't love Persia. He hated Mordecai. He employs racial prejudice. That's part of his manipulative tactic. He employs ethnic stereotypes to control the narrative for the king's perspective so that Haman can manipulate the results to his own desired ends. This man is a manipulator. And he's using the system to generate his desired results. You may not have the control valve to the big political systems of our land, but you do have some influence. And you do have some control within your little sphere of life. Do you use the systems that are at your disposal to manipulate other people or to love them? This, this is not leadership. This is tyranny. We'll have to fast forward just to get to the heart of what I'm trying to point out here. There are so many things we could focus our attention on. But having the lot per, P-U-R, cast in verse 7 to select a day for the genocide of the Jews, verse 8 tells us that Haman gets to work. He profiles the Jewish people to the king. Their laws are different. They don't observe your laws. So it's not in your interest to let them remain. Do you see what just happened? He's manipulating the king to think that it's the king's idea to kill the Jews. Do you see that? The king never had this thought until Haman shows up at his house. But he leaves as Haman walks out the door thinking it's his idea. This is manipulation 101. Jeremiah already told us what the Jews were doing in Persia. So we know that Haman's lying about them. Jeremiah told us that they're seeking the welfare of the city. They're marrying. They're having kids. They're doing good for the city. They're opening businesses. They're hiring people. They're blessing the economy. They're cultivating the land. They're doing nothing but good in Persia. But Haman casts them in another light, doesn't he? And he controls the narrative. And he makes the king think something about the people that's not true. But Proverbs is always going to be true. Every presentation seems right until the second is presented. You can control anybody's mind to think anything. You can cast them in any kind of light you want to cast them in. And you can cause people under that manipulative spell to do your bidding. But I just want to warn you that if you manipulate in this way, you're not fighting against man. It's God. Your enemy's way too big for you. Isaiah 69 says the people had turned themselves and become God's enemy. But Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs 
when the people make war against him because he's installed his king upon his holy hill. Mordecai the Jew presumably also worked for the Persian Empire. That's why he's at the king's gate in the city square. He was probably one of the low-level government workers. He had worked his way up. He had already really been a friend to the king. But Haman wants the king to think the Jews are their worst enemy and need to be exterminated. It's manipulation 101, as I said. The controlling motive for Haman is self-awareness. That's the whole reason he talks to the king. He loves himself most. Self is, when the Bible tells you to die to self, please don't die to the part of you that loves Jesus. Don't don't put to death the part of you that loves His Word. Don't don't kill the part of you that loves His people. Don't die to the part of you that longs for other people to taste the fountain of Christ's redeeming mercies and motivates you to go tell the Gospel with a broken heart and a prayer-filled heart that they too would be saved. Don't, Don't kill that self. But the part of self you need to kill on the daily is the part of you that covets praise. And that's what Haman was driven by. One man wouldn't bow down to him and down to his self-centered bones that controlled everything else about his life. He didn't serve the king. He used the king for his unselfish purposes. Well, the king, having been sufficiently gaslit by the sinister Haman, proceeds to approve the wicked plan and gives his signet ring to that man to enact the law. Chapter 3, verse 10, the took his signet ring and from his hand gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver's yours. The people also do with them as you please. Fourth observation. How does Mordecai respond to the news of Haman's insidious intentions? It's in the first three verses of chapter 4. And the short answer is, he goes Godward. What do you do when you don't know what else to do? Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever been in a place where you feel like the Apostle Paul of the New Testament? Vexed and broken. Thorn in your flesh. And all you know how to do is just cry out to God, help, help, help. Have you ever been in a place where you've learned the beautiful truth that the power of God's perfected in your weakness? Well, Mordecai was getting a lesson on that. And God put him in a place where he no longer had any recourse except God. And so Mordecai puts on his sackcloth, smears the ashes over his head and his face. He goes as close as he can, knowing he can go no further. Verse 2, than the king's gate. Nobody could enter in sackcloth, but he wasn't going to take it off. And then in verse 3, a picture of our Redeemer. Fasting, weeping, wailing. He goes in prayer. Kill him, assassination plot on the king. Kill them, extermination plot for the Jews. And the text ends, verses 4 to 17 of chapter 4. Kill me. What a turn. Two plots to kill, one plan to save. Verse 4, chapter 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came to her, and the Queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered 
him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathok went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Hathot came back, verse 9, and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hathok and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus, I will go into the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away, did just as Esther had commanded him. Just zero in on a passage that I trust many of you know very well. But as I said at the beginning, I don't want to know the narrative. I want to know the author. Do you see the back and forth? They don't have text messaging gadgets. This is an instant communication. As I mentioned earlier, Esther had been queen for five years before Haman exposes his plot to exterminate the Jews. And she knows that this king is so fickle that after all that time, like he had done to Vashti already, she, he might have her put to death if she goes into his presence. But notice the back and forth that gets us there. Verses 5-8, to Esther sends Hathak. Mordecai sends him back with news. Verse 9, Hathak reports to Esther. Verse 10 to 12, Esther sends him back again to Mordecai with a response. Verse 13 to 14, Mordecai sends a response back to Esther. Verse 15 and 16, Esther replies again to Mordecai. Verse 17, Mordecai embraces the plan for prayer and action. Do you see this back and forth? Now, you want to see the sovereignty of God on vivid display? A guy that we probably hadn't paid much, much attention to. I haven't, I'll admit that. This Hathak fellow. If he just forgets one time to deliver the message, the book doesn't take place. The unfolding plan of God is impeded, so it seems. This is an amazing act of providence. Here's a guy assigned to the queen by the king who's running back and forth delivering the words between Mordecai, the cousin father figure, and Esther, the queen savior figure. The most free people on planet earth The most free people on planet earth are those whose love for the Maker of the earth 
causes them not to love their earthly life the most. Jesus tells His followers, do not fear those who can kill your body. That's so counterintuitive. We're just born with natural self-preservation. We don't want to be hurt, let alone die. An innate quality of humanity is fear. But Jesus says without batting an eye, don't fear people who can kill your body. How do you do that? The answer is not to get rid of that fear, but to replace it with a greater fear. So Jesus goes on to say, don't fear those who can kill your body, but are unable to kill your soul. Rather, fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's not removal of fear, it's replacement of fear. It's like Peter on the bow of the boat who says to Jesus one of the most out-of-place seeming sentences in the Bible. Jesus reveals His glory to Peter and the other disciples in a boat. And Peter's next sentence, get away from me. He was afraid that the boat was going to sink. Jesus calms the waves. Now Peter has a greater fear. The God of the universe is standing on the bow of my boat. When your eyes are fixed on Him, the whole world may be against you. But the fear of God puts a wet blanket on the fear of man. And we see it unfold right here in this passage. I won't labor the point. Mordecai says to Esther, if you fail in this moment, make no mistake, you will perish and God's plans will keep marching on. Verse 13 and 14, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. God will do what God will do with or without you or me. He doesn't need us. He graciously uses us. But my disobedience will not in one shred impede the grand purposes of God. If I fail to obey, I lose not God. The great joy of obedience is being part of what God is doing for His glory. And the great loss of sin is what might have been had we obeyed. What might we have known about His great and glorious character and His great heart of love. And then Mordecai asks the question to Esther, sent back through Hathak, who knows whether you've not attained royalty, verse 14, but for such a time as this. This has so many Gospel layers to it. Through Mordecai's prayer and fasting, and then subsequently Esther's prayer and fasting, and then subsequently all the Jews in Susa's prayer and fasting, weeping and wailing, the relatives, the friendships, Esther finally comes to the place of Revelation chapter 12, and I just want to know, have you ever come to this place? I don't think we get there once done, forever accomplished. I think it's a day after day after day, but I just want to know, have you ever been there one time? Revelation 12, Esther becomes this kind of believer on this day. She did not love her life even unto death. Have you ever been to that place? It's not a martyr complex. It's a precious indwelling of the life of the risen Christ. It's not, I'm going to see how much pain I can bring on myself so that God will like me more. It's, 
2 Corinthians 4, I'm always carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus. Present tense. The dying of Jesus so that the life of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.11, may be manifested through my mortal flesh. I think Tim Kaine rightly pointed out that as a young lady, Esther had compromised many, many, many times before this day. I agree with that. But she finally became like an Apostle Paul figure of her Old Testament age when she would say what Paul said in the New Testament, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. She finally said, I want them to be saved even if I have to die in the process. Have you ever been there? When the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives yields a quality of love for our Savior and a type of love for His people, then that work of the Holy Spirit is more controlling and more magnanimous than all other loves combined. And all of our privileges and all of our comforts and all of our felt needs and all of our innate self-preservation, everything about everything about us becomes secondary to the primary glorification of Christ and desire for His honor in the lives of His people. One solitary young lady, I want you to picture this, in a pagan land, in a palace, far from the land of her people, is a mighty weapon in the hand of Almighty God once she gets to the place of absolute surrender. D.O. Moody famously said, the world has yet to see what God will do with one person whose heart is fully yielded to Him. We actually have seen what the Lord will do with one person whose heart is fully yielded to Him. wasn't Esther. In this moment, no doubt magnanimous, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to the King. This passage leaves us on the cliffhanger. We'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday how that story continues. But the one person whose heart was ever and only fully yielded to the Lord God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His life, we find such beauty that Esther's only a faint shadow of. So I leave you not saying things I had intended and summarizing a few things that I can't not say. I want to leave you with just a few application points that I pray will stir your heart so much toward Christ. I can attest to you that my heart has been stirred. And I'm embarrassed at how slow my heart gets stirred. But I want to leave you with this, dear friends, especially those of you who find yourself in a dark place. You can trust God in your darkness because dark days determine nothing. These were dark days for Esther, for Mordecai, for the people of Israel. The decree had gone out far and wide. It had been carried by the couriers, translated into every language. The, the Jews were under an ominous decree of death. It was as dark as dark gets. Annihilation, extermination, genocide is on its way. Everybody in the land knows that it's coming. These are dark days, but I want to say dark days dictate nothing. And I know that because the darkest two days ever 
have shown the most glorious light. On the day of creation, we're told, God said, let light shine out of darkness. And from then until now, I read a report yesterday that our best satellites have discovered two trillion galaxies, each galaxy containing billions of stars. When God said, let light shine out of darkness, I believe that creation has not ceased to expand from that moment. When Jesus told Lazarus to get up out of the grave, he only got up because Jesus said his name, and had he not specified who, I guess all the tombs would have been opened. And that's what happened in creation. He didn't say, light, you stop here, you stop there, you just go. But that's not the darkest day. The darkest day was when the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, burst forth from the cross of Calvary. That noonday darkness that covered the entire earth. Not only was Israel under a curse of condemnation, not only was genocide on the way for one ethnicity, the entire human race, all the peoples of the earth, past, present, and future, were doomed for a day of absolute destruction and death with no hope of salvation. We were in a place where we should have been covered in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing at the gate of the King and just begging God for mercy. And at the cross of Christ, God gives it. The darkest day of all fell on the only innocent man who had perfectly obeyed the Father, who never compromised in a foreign place, and he goes boldly into the presence of the King, not with a if I perish, but when I perish, God have mercy on them. The brightest light of all came out on the most dark day, and I just want to say to you, because of the cross of Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus, right in your darkness, right in your darkness, Darkness determines nothing. God's still on His throne. One of the most astonishing truths about the Gospel is that we're not only accepted by God because Jesus has made us acceptable, but we're also as accepted by God as Jesus is because He's the definition of our acceptance. Do you notice that Esther doesn't know if the king's going to hold out the scepter or if he's going to pull it back? But Jesus has told us that you have the same access to the Father that He has. You can boldly go into the throne of grace. You don't have to wonder if the scepter's coming your way because Hebrews 1 says He rules with a righteous scepter. The scepter of righteousness is in His hands. And if you want to know something that is absurd and true, He has robed you in His own righteousness if you'll come to Him by faith. His perfect righteousness atones for all our rebellion, makes us children of His Father. We have a birthright into the family estate. God's not only our King, like Xerxes to Esther, He's also our Father. And we can come to Him as children. Number two, application. I can't not say it. Trust that Jesus is better than your life because to live is Christ and die is gain. Don't suppose that you're going to survive in the palace because you have it easy today. If you don't walk in obedience, God's going to raise up somebody else who will obey and you and your people will perish. The nonsensical, though often repeated phrase, the safest place in all the earth is in the will of God. No, it is not. Jesus was always in the will of God. 
and was in many dangers, toils, and snares. The man of sorrows, constantly hunted and haunted by Satan. Always pursued. Three times he escapes death plots on his life. Babies in Bethlehem get slaughtered by an evil king because they were looking to kill him. The safest place on all the earth is not the will of God, but it is the most satisfying. And Esther finally learned that blessed joy. Like those three Hebrew boys I alluded to earlier. If we perish, so be it. God's able to save us from the fire, but even if He doesn't, so be it. Do you know in Esther, when she comes to this pivotal moment, which is the key moment, the key turn in the whole book, chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, that's the key turn in the whole book. In this moment, Esther is told that she might have been raised up for such a time as this, and then she enlists prayer warriors. Have you thought about Christ? Nobody tells him. He tells everybody, I'm stalking Jerusalem. I'm hunting the cross. He set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's telling everybody who he is. Nobody's having to tell him. And he gets no prayer warriors to go with him. All of his closest followers fall asleep in his most crucial moment. And he's by himself in sackcloth and ashes. Weeping under the shadow of the cross. Before the death of Jesus, Jesus boldly says what Esther couldn't. Esther said, He hadn't summoned me to come, and you know what the law is. If I go in there without being summoned, the law says I die. You know what Jesus said to the king of his day? We're talking about the day he was crucified. He says to Herod, You would have no authority over me unless my Father in heaven had given it to you. That's what he said before his death. And then after his death, he says, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth in my hands. So third and finally, here's our application, and then we get to rush ourselves to the Lord's Supper under the blessed privilege of belonging to the Son of God who paid for us with His own body and blood. You can trust, right here, right now, no matter how dark your days are, that God's plan will come to pass. You know, Haman's terrible, isn't he? To this day at the Feast of Purim and the celebration of the Jews, the kids rattle and hiss and try to drown out His name. He, he, he's absolutely evil. But I hope you know, there is a more selfish, more evil, more powerful, worse enemy than Haman seeking to devour and destroy you. No battle that Christians face is just what meets the eye. It's always more than meets the eye. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Your biggest enemy is not somebody whose name you might know, who you are related to, or whatever else the circumstances are. The end of the believer's warfare didn't end with the death of Haman, for still our ancient foe, as we sang, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Satan is the enemy of your souls. And Esther... In her situation, never lived in the promised land. She, like Abraham, longed for a better city, a, la a lasting one, and like Christ, she and Mordecai, under the reign of this evil man, where does their confidence spring from? It springs from the fact that even though evil people, and we could say even though Satan himself is seeking to steal kill, destroy. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. He has a plan to kill us. Even though 
our days seem so dark and it seems like Satan on so many occasions appears to have the upper hand, we can trust that God's plan will come to pass. And we know it because if He did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give you all things? The logic of heaven works like this. If He's already done the most difficult thing, and He has, giving Jesus the Lord, heaven's favorite, His precious Son, to die for you and me. If He's already raised Him from death so that through faith in Him we can have forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. If He's already done the hardest thing, then you know for sure He'll do anything less difficult than that to take care of you. Well, may we, in our dark moments, trust the heart of our God. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, thank You so much for Your sovereign prerogative that Your plan continues to march forward in human history. How we see from last in the Old Testament and the New, and especially in the death and resurrection King Jesus, that You are always working Your plan for good even when we cannot see it. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters now who are in the midst of some form of dark days, dark seasons, prolonged seasons of what appear to be no light. Oh God, would You pull back the veil, help them to see that You are at work for Your glory and for their good. And do it especially by causing us to look to the cross where we see in the darkest of all moments You brought the brightest of all light. We know that You are able because You have done it in the resurrection of Jesus. us to trust Him. And I pray for not Father, for those who are not in Christ, we ask that You would cause them to see how Your loving kindness has brought them to this moment so that they too could hear of the saving mercies of Jesus for them. And would You cause lost people to throw themselves into the open arms of the Almighty Jesus as we come to celebrate His victory over death and His promise of eternal life, as we come to celebrate in the Lord's Supper His soon coming return, oh Father, we ask that You would cause us to live faithful to You until that glorious day. Use this moment, whether we remain seated or come together to celebrate as Your people. We ask this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.